0: Technology is so much more than just what's being built and put in boxes and sold to us. It is all of these deeply inherent aspects of how we do things as a species.
1: Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information. And the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are a wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoy this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. In this episode, we learn from Michelle Zappa, a technology futurist, information designer, and founder of Envisioning, an Emerging Technology Foresight Institute. Among other excellent work, Michel and his team create exceptional visualizations in their work helping organizations anticipate the future. So definitely check those out in the show notes or on his website. You can find more on Michel's work at envisioning.io and on Twitter at envisioningtech. In this episode, Michel shares insights on how technology evolves, scouting the edge, assessing emerging technologies, and designing useful future infographics keep listening to learn from michelle's great insights michelle wonderful to be talking to you
0: well thanks for us for having me
1: so you uh, as long as i've uh, known of you you've been uh, looking at the edge of technology and the edge of the future and keeping across all sorts of change so how do you do it what's what's the starting point for you
0: well, I think I got an early start by being interested in these, in this particular intersection uh, between sort of imagination, uh, the future, and technology, by spending a lot of time uh, watching Star Trek: The Next Generation um, as a kid, and uh, I think that coupled with uh, internet forums where they would discuss how the actual engines and uh, and everything in the series worked, um, I think that just tuned my brain and my interest into figuring out that, hey, perhaps new technology is possible and perhaps those new, technolo- those new technologies will shape the future in unexpected ways. And perhaps by writing science fiction, uh, we can anticipate part of that how that will unfold. Um, so that was always part of my very personal interest. Uh, professionally, I ended up doing things adjacent to this, but never uh, directly related to it until about a decade ago, I decided to drop everything and focus on technology futures, which is how um, those first couple of infographics came about uh, and they were this, this attempt at, I guess, um, distilling what I saw uh, going on, both in the uh, short term, in terms of which are the fields of technology that are being worked on right now, but as well as uh, coupling that with some sort of longer term thinking. Um, that, you know, people like uh, Kurzweil and Kevin Kelly, who, um, who have a particular view on how the future might unfold Given these technologies, well, I tried coupling their long term views, which highly, uh, you know, which, which, which really inspired me with, um, with sort of a short term view of what's actually going on now and turning that into these uh, digestible, uh, overviewable infographics with, um, where, with a finger on the pulse of what I saw going on in technology and how that could unfold in, our, in, in the near future. I hope that answered your question.
1: Yeah. So, well, for those who uh, haven't seen uh, Michelle's work, will be links in the show notes to some of his uh, wonderful infographics. But f- before we dig into the infographics, wanna, part of this is, of course, just keeping across change. So wh- what's your daily routine? Wh- how do you... what? sources do you go to? What do you look for? How do you assess whether something is interesting or not? What's that process of being able to just scan for or look for or uncover or, uh, you know, bookmark information?
0: That's a great question. I think that what works for me is a mix between the immediate, um, let's call it the gadget news and the Twitter uh, view of what's happening in technology. I feel that's a valuable um, way of understanding how the the ecosystem is shaping up. In other words, who's being invested in, which gadgets are coming out, which features are being uh, put out there by consumer technology companies. That is a big aspect of what I keep track of. Um, so things like The Verge, uh, IEEE, uh, Spectrum, MIT Tech Review, uh, Wired, I guess all of these have a, uh, a good approximation or sort of a, an up-to-date view of what's happening, mostly on the consumer side, which gives you a good understanding into what's happening on the industrial um, or even public-facing side of technological development. But that needs to be coupled with this sort of higher-level understanding of what technology is. I don't mean... I mean, you, we don't have to go all the way back to Heidegger, but it helps to have a um, sort of a, a broader picture of that technology is not just the devices we use, but it's how we do things. Uh, it's how we interface with nature is technology. So it's so much more than just what's being built and put in boxes um, and sold to us. Um, it's uh, it, it is all of these uh, deeply inherent aspects of how we do things as a species. All of these are technological. And I think having that view, and several authors do a great job um, explaining that, much better than I ever could in a, in a, um, right here, but uh, having that sort of big, big picture view um, coupled with a close understanding to what people are actually using, that has always been my mix. I feel there are many uh, academics who have a way, you know, much better understanding of the big picture than I ever could, yet they might not be that close to where, uh, you know, which companies are being invested in, which markets are shaping up. And I think that interplay is, is key to our approach, or at least my personal approach.
1: So you, you talked about this, this framing of how we think about technology or the, I suppose, the human's relationship with technology. So who are the authors who you'd point to and what, what is the, what can we pull out from their framing of that?
0: So immediately uh, what comes to mind is um, so Ursula, uh, Ursula Franklin and the real world of technology and someone like Kevin Kelly who talks about it in the inevitable and what technology wants um, these I mean what I took away from from these two books for example is this view that technology is almost an autonomous system um it is built by us it is consumed by us it is um Designed by us in every effect in every way, but in effect uh it has its own direction, it has its own agency, and we cannot attribute decisions to it, but still it unfolds in a very predictable way uh Kevin Kelly sums it up in terms of um, it becomes more complex, it becomes more affordable, it becomes faster it ha- um, it has these uh, certainties in 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 the way that it's uh, that it unfolds, right? And w- what I think these authors do a good job with is uh, putting the uh, the devices and the gadgets uh, into the context of of our lived experience. Um, someone else who says it very well, um, if I'm not mistaken. Langdon Winner talks about technological synambulism, and technological synambulism is this idea that we can um, this misconception that we can Uh, somehow put the technology down, uh, or rather we can pick a technology up and then we can put it back down again and we will remain unchanged. That is sonambulism. That is a fallacy. That is not true because the technology, in knowing that it exists, uh, let alone having used it, has already shaped us. It has already changed us. So uh, so we're often uh, sleepwalking when we use technologies because we don't truly appreciate how much it's actually affecting us. I think the Amish do a great job have to sum this up uh, like the the uh the luddite approach to, to technology um i mean luddite of course meant something else when they came about but the way we look at it today which is taking sort of a, a few steps back with regards to new technology and what the amish and, and a few other sort of very localized cultures have been able to do is uh, collectively like, before accepting a technology into your society uh they will extensively evaluate it. They will uh, the, they will weigh the pros and cons and they will consider the implementation that is best for, you know, f- for that particular use case. So it might not be so the way they approach having phones, at least when I read about it was having a communal phone uh, in the village as opposed to everyone having a smartphone or even a mobile phone or even a phone phone uh, in their house or pocket. So I think that sort of measured approach uh, is something that's sorely missing.
1: So when you see, for example, some you know news of some technological advance, you're thinking about it in terms of, uh, I suppose, this life course, as it were, of the technology, how that might shape us as humans, or how we might respond to it. Uh, you know, what what are the things which you are thinking about when you s- identify some interesting or meaningful uh, technological touch point?
0: So. I think there are at least three perspectives through which we can look at any technology. Uh, Fourth, if we include academia, but the three ones that I wanna talk about are the public sector, the private sector and consumers, because any technology will affect those four areas, right? academia in terms of technology is applied science. It happens largely speaking in universities, R&D labs, Um, actual technological technological innovation, Arguably, doesn't happen so much in in the private sector, uh, although it's applied to the private sector, which leads to consumer choices. So, f- from that perspective, from sort of what's being purchased and what's being used, and which SaaS companies are thriving, and which gadget dev- you know gadget makers are doing well this quarter, uh, from the perspective of the private sector and consumers, I think it's important to keep track of, but it's the least interesting uh, of where actual innovation happens. I think actual innovation happens um, on the, in the public sector, it's governments. Uh, they have the sort of the long longitudinal, uh, I don't know if benefit is the right word, but like they have, they, they stand to win the most from a long-term approach to technology. And so often we just lose track of how that's, how technology actually happens. Uh, Mariana Mazzucato, uh, in the entrepreneurial state, uh, talks about the, um, if you break down something like the smartphone uh, into its core components, uh, the GPS, the internet, the touchscreen, et cetera, et cetera, well, like eight out of ten of those uh, were made by the public sector. They would make, I mean, specifically DARPA and the US military had um, uh, a disproportionate role in in, in in the feature set of of smartphones, for example. But the general principle is true everywhere, uh, where the public sector, oftentimes uh, carries all the risk of investing in new technologies, whereas the private sector uh, gets all the upside uh, and all the benefit when a technology actually thrives. Uh, And there are, again, numerous examples of this. And this is different on a a per-country basis. It's difficult to generalize around. She talks about it mostly around the US, um, which is fair, because that's where most technological development happens, at least uh, least, uh, from, from my perspective or that which I can see and read. And um, so I think having this three-part or four-part view of, okay, so technology affects the consu- consumers very differently than they do, companies very differently than they do the public sector. Uh, I, just, I think just having that sort of pronged approach to, to, to be able to look at them differently and see how they engage with one another, um, which is to say, look outside corporate innovation for where actual uh, invention will, will, will happen. So it sounds
1: like I mean, part of this has been able to assess both the genesis of and also the impact of technologies. But but let's come back to uh, day by day. So you've come across, you've encountered in your uh, studies or reading something which is interesting. So what do you do with that? Do you make a note of that? Do you put it in a database? Uh, do you assess that on any scales? What? How do you? How do you then? Uh, take this significant news about technology development and incorporate that into your thinking?
0: Sure. So there's a few ways to go about that. Uh, on a personal level, I think I've, I've tried every knowledge management tool out there. And there are a few that I keep coming back to which uh, work because they're sort of ubiquitous and easy to feed things into. Um, I don't know if that's I I guess that's part of the scope uh, of the the program. So on a personal note, I use uh, Things extensively as what I would call my personal operating system. Things is, uh, it's mostly a Mac and iOS app, and it does a wonderful job uh, managing tasks and just knowledge or like, uh, yeah, uh, task-oriented knowledge very easily and and, in a quick manner. And what happens after Things is where things get more interesting, I, I suppose, because if we have... If, if there's something that I'm looking at, which I would consider a technology, then that quickly falls into um, a work stream that we've uh, employed at the uh, at envisioning, sort of an, an internal way of looking at incoming links and assessing whether uh, there are new technologies that should be tracked. And if they should be tracked, then uh, how do we track them? And there's an intermediary step here where I share this particular uh, link with, uh, with, the, with the research team. And then we have our, our methodology or our approach to determining whether, is, whether this is a technology. If it is a technology, then which technologies does it depend on? Is it an application of an, of, of an underlying technology or is it something more, um, or is it an enabling technology that will give rise to other applications? So there's a few ways that we break it down uh, into a, a taxonomy of technologies. And then there's this uh, concrete component where we Track or add this technology to our database, and our database is um, is comprised of um, of a web interface and a process. Uh, the process itself determines what what is and what isn't, how to uh, what goes in and what doesn't go in, uh, what type of metadata we should add, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's the process, and then the actual tool is a web based uh, again web based web based database that we built for ourselves, which is used to publish. Most of our work nowadays. So what we have is a an index of about fifteen hundred different technologies. Some of them are enabling enabling technologies. Others are applications. And um, what they have in common is they're all being tracked and measured and um, assessed uh, over time. So we'll track things like their technology readiness level uh, or TRL. It's a score from one to nine, which will tell you how mature um, a individual technology is. That's part of the assessment we do um, when things go into the database. Uh, Another, I think, valuable point to bring up is we try assessing these technologies from a few different perspectives um, as often as possible. So in another Research project that we're uh, in uh, that we're working on. Um, we have this ongoing research uh, around uh, technologies for sustainable development, uh, together with the German uh, Corporation for International Collaboration, part of the, of the government. And uh, what we do with them is we look at uh, the set of technologies uh, around again sustainable development, but the emphasis is on measuring them. So we both describe them as we do in other projects, but we also measure them. So we talk about. Um, to which degree could this technology cause a gender imbalance? Uh, in other words, is it um, hindering or is it fostering um, gender neutrality? And we assess that through a series of sub-questions and um, we do the same thing for other indicators. So at the end, what, what we're trying to achieve with this um, is to create a qualitative picture of what's happening in tech, but also a quantitative measure of it.
1: So, to take an example, I mean, I presume you're tracking uh, the development of augmented reality glasses. And so let's say there is a advance, some a technological advance or a new product or some, something which pushes out what where, where we are in the field or, or I suppose points the directions on who might win in that space. So how, how do you then incorporate that into your thinking about uh, directions?
0: I think one way to look at it, d- is in terms of uh, the inevitabilities. So perhaps to go back a little bit to Kevin Kelly's idea of technology is already happening and we can't really control it. There is a degree where AR is is an inevitability. It's been discussed so extensively. It's so it's 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 part of our uh, zeitgeist to such a degree that it's really difficult to imagine it um, going away. And um, but a way you measure it or the way you keep track of it. Uh, one way is to look at the milestones around the technology. Um, Whenever Apple releases their glasses will be a milestone, Uh, the same way that when Google Glass came about a decade ago, despite not being AR, uh, that too was a milestone. Um, What Facebook released a couple of days ago, arguably is one of those milestones with the Ray-Ban integration, although that too is far from being AR. Uh, That's just Facebook being creepy. But... um, the, but it's moving in the general direction of like, how do you miniaturize um, batteries, camera tech, uh, screen t- display technology, um, all of that is happening all, and all of that is being worked on by numerous startups and big companies alike because they strongly suspect that that will be the next uh, mobile, right? Uh, the same way mobile and then smartphones became the de facto way of interfacing with the web. Possibly AR will be the next one, so I think it's it's self fulfilling in some respect, um, and we get we keep getting these milestones of. Uh,
1: so, for example, you pointed to miniaturization there. So, does that mean that you specifically look at miniaturization because that might feed into into these kinds of te- um, consumer applications?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think on every front of, I think I mean technologies are fundamentally digital technology, at least. We're not talking biotech, we're not talking nanotech. But if we talk sort of digital technologies and consumer devices and and electronics, if we sort of contain that scope, then what you'll realize is most technologies are more similar than they are different. Uh, Most technologies will have a power system, be it a battery pack or because they're plugged into a wall. Most technologies will have an input and an output. Uh, A display will have an LCD, Uh, a computer will have ports, Every technology sort of has those basic components. Well, the point I'm trying to make is uh, those co- on, on each one of those components front, there's miniaturization efforts happening and there's also sort of replacement happening. In other words, the glasses need a power system. Whether that power system is wirelessly driven because we have wireless power um, and uh, or whether which isn't really here yet, or whether you use a battery. Well, if you use a battery, then which battery technology you use is it lithium ion or is it graphene powered? Well, those sub choices, I think, is where things get really interesting, uh, and that's where we see miniaturization and, and other uh, sort of longitudinal trends um, happening. In other words, one one if you're designing an AR system, the the bottlenecks or the constraints will be known um, fairly early in the process. It's going to be latency, it's going to be uh, weight, it's going to be uh, durability, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, these these are known up front. And then what you spend decades and decades doing is optimizing for those uh, for those constraints.
1: So you're then thinking in terms of bottlenecks, you're identifying what the bottlenecks are and what, what are the things that may, might transcend them. Is that something you're scanning for and looking for, is it?
0: That's something we're increasingly doing. Yes. So in what we've done historically is we've been able to identify new technological applications and we will scout these by looking at science fiction, by looking at technology and looking at reports, uh, you know, trends. We, we scout this, uh, broadly to look at okay, which are the new applications or use cases for, uh, the technologies that we see on the horizon. What we're adding to that mix is this, um, systematic view of these technological applications and especially isolating what's um what's hindering their development right now so we can call them bottlenecks we can call them or you can call them milestones uh, depending on your perspective because before you reach it it's a bottleneck but after you passed it it became a milestone and um, so we're looking at these indicators uh, ideally over time um as as one of the functions of of looking at emerging technology as a whole. In other words, anticipating um, a future scenario or anticipating a future application is fairly easy. I mean, I'm not saying sci-fi authors do a poor job. I think they do an amazing job and they're able to do that um, even without a scientific backing. Um, They're imaginative and they can figure out or, or anticipate how we might use technologies in the future, but then it's the engineer's job, so to speak, to figure out how to achieve that or how to how to build it, um, and that's where the bottlenecks with the milestones, I think, come into picture. So that's part of what we're adding to our research approach is very much um, the ability to, okay, so between where I am now and where I want to end up, what's hindering me, what's stopping me, um, and that and you can treat it differently because one thing is, you know, what are how are you hindered by by physics, by science, or by the economy at large because. You know, microprocessor. or Yeah, right now microprocessors are unavailable because of uh, supply chain shortages. Right, you're out of control. No car manufacturer uh, controls that part of the supply chain. Therefore, they're out of luck. So that's one perspective on of a bottleneck. Uh, another perspective of the bottleneck is sort of internal. Well, we could purchase this company, or we could purchase this particular technology, or we could license it, etc. Um, that would be a different type of bottleneck. And I think without uh, getting too you know, too, too ahead of myself. I think that's part of how we're trying to break down the um, uh, the turning technological futures into reality uh, aspect. You are listening
1: to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. So so does this mean that in a way you are, rather than passively seeing information come in, you're proactively looking for things that will fulfill Certain criteria, as in addressing bottlenecks or meeting mal- potential milestones on on technology journeys that you've mapped out.
0: So this might bump into uh, foundation uh, territory where you're uh, anticipating and predicting. We we took a step away from prediction uh, early on in the uh, in the company's history, so to speak, and, and decided to focus on what's actually there. Um, so readiness as opposed to, uh, so how ready is something right now, as opposed to when, might might we see it? Um, and but to answer your question, I, I think that's a likely outcome as in once we start looking at the bottlenecks and once we start having a better grasp of, let's call it the underlying issues that haven't been addressed yet, or that haven't been figured out yet, or the solutions we haven't found yet. Uh, then once that's part of of the methodology and the research approach, then, then arguably, Um, we'll start looking for ways to address them because more often than not, uh, large swaths of the industry are facing the same issue. Again, going back to the microprocessors today and supply chain issue for, for everything from cars to smart fridges, everyone's stuck because they don't have computers to put into their headrests literally um so they ha- they're having to re-engineer uh vehicles and of course every other iot device out there uh to consider having less uh processors now that they're not as ubiquitous as, as we thought so yeah i think looking at bottlenecks is is a way to um to better understand the the dependencies and 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 the the interconnectedness of these different developments
1: so so i want to soon get to hearing about your process for creating your wonderful infographics, but but first of all, just coming back to synthesis, and we talked about this a little bit earlier in terms of seeing that, that macro picture. So we have many signals, whether those just sort of come in or we're looking for them and we're trying to get some sense of it. So how is it that you, in your own mind or in terms of, you know, laying that out in whatever form, you know, pull together the pieces into something which is this bigger perspective on... The you know whatever whatever the domain is that you're looking at
0: the the short answer would be because I keep doing it as in there's no way to do it completely every time that we've attempted to document what I call the technological ecosystem um, every attempt be it to build a database or to build a technology graph every every stab um, that I've taken at this problem over uh, at least the last decade uh, arguably longer than that every attempt has been sort of building towards the next attempt. In other words, I'm not trying to replicate Wikipedia. I think Wikipedia probably has a comprehensive view of quote-unquote all technologies, and it's uh, not navigable in terms of you cannot isolate just innovation and invention within the scope of Wikipedia. You will encounter um, uh, people, places, uh, fantasy realms, etc., Whereas what what we've been trying to scope out and has always been tightly defined as technology, and then how you define technology, of course, things get tricky once again um, but if if we manage to stay within that scope, then I think what has worked so far is that we keep doing it or that I keep doing it uh, there's a There's a fine line between uh, me and the company and um the but the point is personally that's always been a, a strong driver and a strong interest of making sense of the big picture and and i'm heavily biased in terms of i grew up on a certain set of technologies i grew up with um opening and closing and rebuilding my personal computer uh, and replacing uh, the cpu from 386 to 486 and replacing the hard disk drive um and the like I grew up with that framework and I grew up sort of programming HTML. So my understanding, uh, that's why I made my first book, um, like my understanding of technology is directed in terms of certain uh, branches. I know nothing of biotech. I know nothing of materials. I know nothing of chemistry, whereas you would, you know, you you need PhDs um, to even start scratching the surface of what's emerging or what's new or what's cutting edge in those spaces. What, what I've been trying to make, though, despite those biases, what I've been trying to achieve is this big picture of how they all interconnect, whether it's because of their dependencies. So if you, if you were to restart again with a wheel and fire, would you end up where we are now? Like to do that sort of thought exercise um, or to look at those uh, relationships over time. Um, I'm trying to bring that approach to, let's put it differently. I'm trying to build a map. Right now, parts of the map are known, and usually you know your bit of the map really well, but mo- but everything else lies in shadows. Um, if you are a, a front end developer, you will probably know very little um, about uh, biotechnology. There's no reason why you should have spent any time in your formative years learning about biotech or materials or energy technology for that matter, just because you work in tech, uh, so to speak. What we're trying to do is to build that map because there is there's no boundary between HTML and which is hypertext technology. There's no boundary between that and material sciences. They're just disconnected by a couple of steps on a graph, and whether you can sort of whether you can finalize that or actually define those boundaries remains to be seen but I think what's been working is we just haven't haven't stopped trying
1: well would I think that that does take us to the infographics not that those are the whole map but those are these are, I suppose elements of it so so it's What's, so uh, I'll, I, you know, I hope all my readers will have either already seen or will see some of your infographics. And, but whether we're going back from the early ones or to what you're doing now, what is the process? How do you start? What is the, the way in which you build one of your visualizations of a technology space or a, or a, a space?
0: I think the primary, the, the leading question is always, uh, who is this for? And I think what worked with the infographics of 2011, 2012, uh, the when there was much more optimism and much less um, development on some of these fronts, uh, I think what worked there is like that. That the big picture was still felt uh, fairly manageable. It felt as if it it, it was bounded. Um, there was not a ton of things happening outside of. Uh, of, of those technologies, so to speak, that was the impression. Of course, looking back a decade later, I realized realized how wrong I was and how many things were missing on that map, things like crypto, things like drones, uh, and so many others that uh, were simply not part of the scope when I was looking at it in, in twenty doing the research in twenty ten to then launch in twenty eleven. Uh, and I think that's where the biggest learnings are, is to see what was actually missing. I think like being right isn't half as interesting as being wrong in futures, Uh, but we can, we can zoom into that as well. Um, But going back to your question, sort of how, how to go about building a a complete overview or, or, or a big picture uh, perspective, I think who is, who it's for matters a lot. So those particular Uh, representations or infographics were for a general audience who's interested in technology at large, but uh, sort of enthusiastic about it, but might not know what lies beyond uh, their particular field. And I think to that effect, they they struck a nerve and they sort of found an audience for that. And where we've, of course, been pivoting towards is to zoom in to different fields, industries, sectors, uh, parts of the economy. And that is for a very different audience. That's for someone who needs to pick between two technological solutions, or even two pathways of investing. On should we do solid-state batteries, or should we do uh, you know, should we try figuring out uh, over the air? like the specifics of it uh, is where of course things get really interesting. But I think they're very different audiences. Going back to your question once again, like once you know who your audience is, um, and once you've sort of you've decided who you're designing for. Um, the next phase is always, sort of what's the, okay then, then what's the available data? Um, are we looking at this from a perspective of giving the audience a, um, a, a better view of what's going to be likely uh, 10, 20, 30 years from now? That will be one um, sort of intersection of, of, of the technologies where you're looking at low levels of readiness and high levels of speculation. That will, of course, result in a very, very different view than if you're looking at, okay, so what's available for my supply chain next month? Well, I think I don't think we'd be the, the right people to ask for that latter question, but we'll, we often find ourselves sort of halfway between those extremes. Um, so sure, there are uh, organizations who are great at identifying sort of what you should do right now. Um, but if you take that horizon one into horizon two and three, then I think our, what we've been trying to do and the way we, we present our infographics um, is all about... Showing what's possible, showing what's next, showing what's uh, further down um, the horizon. Sometimes those decisions will be made. I mean, sometimes those those decisions will affect people who have already left the organization by the time it happens, um, which is this perennial challenge of ours um, because the actual effect of the thing we're doing now usually, um, you know, it happens so it happens much further down the road. Um, so it's it's a challenge to bring that back into the present and justifying that that participation. Uh, I feel I'm rambling here.
1: Yeah. So so as part of a timelines and dependencies,
0: um, absolutely. And we're figuring out the best way to track that. So the dependencies is one way to look at. I think like the bottleneck approach or the uh, or sort of seeing. Okay. So if we invest in this particular set of technologies, where are we likely to end up? So I think that dependency approach is part of how we actually how clients actually use the research once it's in. Um, and the timeline approach, um, I think that's trickier. We've, uh, we track things like technology readiness level over time, uh, yet it's such a slow-moving target that it's, um, it borders on not being um, that useful. I mean, the, the, we're, we're figuring out what the best approach to actually predicting uh, progress is, uh, and tracking readiness over time is one of those indicators.
1: So these, so they are designed, so is is there any, I mean, you are a designer, so I suppose it makes it easier for you, but is there, what is the process to then take all this data and insight and uh, perspective and lay that out on a page?
0: I think part of the challenge is always defining the boundaries. And so similarly to uh, knowing who who the audience is, I think uh, the other side of that challenge is defining the boundaries of what's useful. And that becomes almost an editorial challenge where determining, say we're looking at the future of uh, water treatment. So we're looking at uh, technologies that are likely to have a positive effect on how we uh, filter, uh, distribute and manage water. Um, once you start sort of zooming in on that, um, it becomes very important to understand like what the boundaries of the research are, uh, because what happens? Some, and, and I think therein lies a the challenge because technologies oftentimes jump from one category to the next. They'll jump from an industry to another industry with no um, respect for who, you know, which companies are working in that space. Right? That's not how technology operates. Um, the point I'm trying to make is, going back to the water example, there are probably adjacencies. There are probably technologies that are next to the ones that uh, we're looking at right now, which might you know, be potential uh, uh, s- suitors uh, to address that underlying issue of filtering water, disturbing water, et cetera. Um, and knowing where to draw the boundary becomes the key challenge in any 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 one of these uh, exercises, both for how to scope the research as well as how to present it. Because once we're working with said company who wants to look into water treatment, making the case for like, oh, check out this a weird new material that's being used to, uh, you know, soak up uh, oils, but it might be useful to, um, to filtering water, you know, making that connection is, uh, it's an editorial challenge. It's a research challenge. Sometimes it's a relationship challenge where you have to convince the stakeholder on the other side to actually have a look at that because it's, you know, it could be, uh, it could be useful. So going back to your design question, I think like defining the, the boundaries uh, of what you're looking at is, uh, is key.
1: So boundaries and adjacencies and the boundaries, I suppose, comes back to this taxonomy, I suppose, or a structure.
0: It does. And at the same time, I'm, I'm wary of taxonomies. As in every taxonomy, I mean, this, I'm not an ontological expert at all. Uh, this will be very, very superficial. But like my understanding of taxonomies is that they're always going to be uh, applied Afterwards, as in nature doesn't adhere to any taxonomies. There are no boundaries in nature. There's no physics. There's no there's no chemistry, and there's no biology in nature. There's just nature, and nature, nature's that's that's how the universe happens, and and everything like at every time we define a boundary, it's reductive, but it's also useful. Um, but I'm increasingly wary of boundaries. So in one of these experiments that we've been um, Uh, looking at, uh, I think I referred to it earlier, the the technology graph is this approach where we're trying to look at the relationship between quote-unquote all technologies. The first thing that we threw out the window was um, the areas or the domains or the fields, whatever you want to call it, because they are applied uh, afterwards. When a technology is being built, it depends on other technologies. So to have the carburetor first needs to invent... um, you need to invent gasoline, then you need to invent the uh, motor and then the carburetor, then the actual automobile, like all these dependencies, um, do not respect, uh, fields or they don't respect, um, like the carburetor doesn't care that we would call it mobility a hundred years later. There's nothing. And, and also it's not a mobility. It's, not, it's, and it's not a mobility technology per se. Um, so any, uh, going back to the taxonomy question, we are, very much trying to find definitive, um, definitive definitions or like or finite definitions to these, uh, whether they're uh, enabling technologies or whether they're which means they give rise to several others, or whether they're uh, applications, which is sort of the end of the process. Once you have an application, you don't really do anything else technologically with that. Um, so we we are trying to define that, and at the same time, it might be. Uh, um, it might be an effort that is, that is impossible, uh, that, but it r- remains to be uh, tested.
1: Yeah, yeah, so it's I suppose part of that framework. So, so in wrapping up, what's, uh, do you have any uh, I mean, you're, you're living in this space and keeping across the edge of technological change? I mean, do you have any advice to generalize advice, I suppose, around how to be able to keep across? You know, extraordinary change, and to help make sense of that,
0: I think there's there's a few, yeah there are a few ways to, to answer that question. I think there there are there are truths that are that have been here for uh, longer than we have, and I think that's one way to uh, soothe the anxiety of um, of future shock. In other words, if we feel that the world is speeding up, and most people I talk to feel that way. Um, I've conducted surveys on this, and I know that 80% of people I talk to will feel as if the world is speeding up, and um, and those 20% are very interesting in their own right. But uh, but going back to your question, I think there are sort of there are truths that are uh, uh, that have been I mean, there there are, there are facts, there are certainties, there are aspects of reality that have been here longer than we have. Um, in uh, for some people, um, religion occupies that space because religion. Uh, some religions do a wonderful job explaining the big picture in a way that puts us into perspective and in a way that we do not, we do not feel as if we are sort of solely responsible for making the whole thing work, uh, which is a little bit of how the postmodern condition, uh, like, I think, like, in so many ways, we feel uh, very responsible for the state of affairs. And that's true. Uh, we are responsible for, for the climate emergency and what have you. And there are sort of longer truths that are also true that we can fall back onto, which doesn't have to be through religion. I think that's just one pathway. Uh, it's not my pathway, but I think it's a very, very valid pathway for, for so many people and other ways to sort of learn about the longer truths uh, of, of how and why we're here. I think that helps soothe future shock because the new will keep uh, happening. That's not going to stop. The, like the, the exponentials will keep applying, um, the amount of um, of things we can get away with online and things that are happening online, and like that's not going to slow down, um, and it hasn't been slowing down. And the only way for it to slow that down is to step out of it, and to simply not be on TikTok, quote unquote. Um, and so I think having like that longer perspective really helps. A system that has always worked for me is just making notes for myself. Everyone has their own note-taking method. Some people journal in the morning, some people prefer paper over digital. Um, I have my own preference. And I think just acting in that space, just practicing note-taking, um, I think brings coherence to to the challenge of, of, of our daily life. So I would highly recommend that.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much for your insights uh, and time. Michelle has been really valuable, really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you so much, Ross, for the invitation, and hope to see more of you soon. Thank you for listening to the show.
1: If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.